When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as the best insight analysis on all the topics you're talking about in football. I'm your McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Castles. It's Wednesday's pod, which means your questions answered. And we're going to get stuck into them in just a moment. But first, as always, we like to bring you that news at the top of the pod. We told you just last week in uh, the podcast that Max Allegri had been approached by someone representing Everton or claiming to someone representing Everton about the job there. But Duncan has some more blockbuster information regarding the former Juventus coach's potential uh, destination in England still. Duncan. Yes, um, this is information that Max Allegri spent the last three weeks in London um, as part of his uh, attempts to get his uh, comprehension of the English language up to a level where he will be ready to coach in the Premier League. So he's been taking lessons um, in England um, and also spending the time scouting out uh, the English football scene, the opportunities that could be available to him in the Premier League. He um, attended uh, one Tottenham Hotspur match in the company of uh, a former sporting director of Tottenham, uh, Franco Baldini. Also, interestingly, in the company of Patrice Evra, um, his former player at Juventus and a, and a man who's taking his coaching badges at present. Um, and Tottenham, I'm told, is one of the clubs that um, Allegri is considering as, uh, as a strong option uh, for him to start his career in the Premier League. Um, he's obviously aware of the situation with Maurizio Pochettino and the expectation that Pochettino will no longer be Tottenham Hotspur manager after this season is completed, if not earlier. Um, and I'm told is uh, intrigued by the possibility of um, taking over there should that offer be placed with him. Obviously, with his relationship with Baldini, there is an access point to Daniel Levy. Um, I believe that Baldini still is in uh, regular contact with the uh, senior figure at Tottenham and is still uh, a trusted voice there. Um, Obviously, uh, Allegri is aware of the situation at Manchester United and uh, and monitoring that as well. And I'm told, should uh, an offer come from Manchester United, then the Patrice Evra, who was sitting alongside him as uh, as Tottenham were comprehensively beaten by Bayern Munich, would be a candidate to be his assistant at Old Trafford, which I think would be a, a very appealing move for the Manchester United support, given Evra's record at the club and given his um, you know, consistent uh, and strong support for the club um, since he, he's left um, that uh, playing role. 
Um, and I think Evra also would be has the potential to be a very good coach um, down the line. It's something that he's been preparing for actually since his time working with Allegri at Juventus. Um, and he has the intelligence and uh, I think the personality um, to be a, a, a quality coach. Um, still told that Allegri will be patient about all of this. Um, he is telling friends that his preference is very much to see out his sabbatical year, um, to use that uh, for uh, recovery purposes, uh, also to secure the best job opportunity for himself and to de develop the skills with English language being one of those. Um, ideally, he would have his club determined um, by February or March next year, um, which would allow him time to uh, narrow down his preparation specifically for the club he was going to be working for and obviously get involved in their um, transfer market preparations for the next season. Um, so, interesting time uh, for Allegri. He's very well aware that he's a strong candidate um, for any job that comes up. Um, Real Madrid, uh, another one that's that's in his thinking. Um, there have been contacts with Madrid in the past. Although, as we've said in the podcast, the um, the, the expectation in football is that when Zidane um, is dismissed by Florentino Perez, which is what Florentino Perez has been preparing for for a while, and he's waiting for the right set of results to do so, that uh, the, the person he will turn to as replacement will be Jose Mourinho. Well, it's certainly the case, Duncan, for Tottenham Hotspur that they seem to be uh, doing a very good impression of Jekyll and Hyde, both on and off the pitch. Uh, Tuesday night's 5-0 uh, thumping of Red Star Belgrade, uh, coming after that 7-2 defeat to Bayern Munich. And uh, Steve Brewer, who's at Stephen Brewer 86, has actually made that very point and a very good question, uh, which, which he says, what is Poch thinking? Every other day seems to be contradictory. We don't need to spend in January. Be prepared. We need to spend in January. I'm not worried about the sack. I am worried about the sack. If this is how he is to the media these days, God help the squad, says Steve. Duncan, I think Steve's got a good point there. He does seem to be coming across as a man in a muddle, at least, if not very confused about exactly what his future holds. Well, I think you've got to be aware that this is very new to Maurizio Pochettino. He's had um, years and years and years of uh, success and perceived success in Premier League football. He's been basically the darling of the media. Um, and I think, um, you know, for a, a good number of, of uh, supporters, um, not just of his own club, but of other clubs, um, as being perceived as one of the, the very, very top coaches in football and, uh, and a man that uh, people would want to see employed at their club. So he's now in a, in a situation where Tottenham are underperforming, questions are being asked about um, his failure to have them up, up with Liverpool and Manchester City as competitors for the Premier League title and, um, and his commitment to the club. Um, and uh, as you know, you've reported, there have been questions inside the, the Tottenham dressing room about his behaviour um, and uh, his change in attitude, um, uh, the, the, the fall off in his focus, um, the distance he's placed uh, between himself and the players. 
uh, and um, some public questioning of the players um, in his press conferences, which is something we have not seen with Pochettino before at Tottenham. Um, so I think it's pretty much a reflection of that. Um, and, uh, and if you talk to people close to Maurizio Pochettino, um, they're feeling very much is that this is the end of the road for him at, um, at the naming rights lane and, uh, and his mind is on his next job. Um, obviously, you have the complication that Daniel Levy does not want to lose Pochettino without very significant compensation. He's seen Real Madrid try to um, hire Pochettino. Um, in recent times, he's seen strong interest from Manchester United, which remains in his manager. He knows he has him on a contract, which um, entitles Tottenham to tens of millions of pounds of compensation should Pochettino go elsewhere. Therefore, um, Levy, as Levy is, wants to make money from um, a valuable asset, which complicates um, Pochettino's exit strategy. Certainly the case, and for anyone who may believe that players don't take notice of what the manager says in press conferences, I would uh, certainly question that. And I think it's a, a good point that Steve makes at the end of his question, that God help the squad. Because, for instance, when uh, I was on the road uh, as a football reporter doing press conferences, uh, if I'd been at a press conference at a particular club pre-match, say on a Friday, um, I could expect to get into my car uh, maybe half an hour, an hour later and I'd be getting text messages or phone calls from players in that team asking me before obviously it went out on television or the newspaper what the manager had said, specifically what he said about him or the team or how they might play or et cetera, et cetera. So players do take a great deal of interest in what the manager says in press conferences because let's face it, he's representing the club but also representing them to an extent as well in the things he says. Now, with Pochettino's um, attitude, image, the way he's coming across, looking like someone who doesn't really know his own mind, uh, I think it's right to point out that you know he does contradict himself from day to day. That does seem to be a significant reflection on what is happening, not just in Pochettino's mind, but indeed with Pochettino and his squad, because uh, we've seen him change tactics, we've seen him change players, some players fall in, some players fall out. It, I think there is certainly um, a depiction there which is an accurate one, and that is that Pochettino is in a state of confusion. I think, uh, as we have said on the pod a few times, um, he, he doesn't really know where he wants to Well, I think he knows where he wants to be, <clears throat> but he doesn't really know how he's going to get there and, indeed, how long it's going to take him to get there. And that's causing him a bit of a kind of almost crisis, if you like, uh, with regards to um, dealing with the present and actually improving Spurs on the pitch. The result in the Champions League was obviously a big up for them. And of course, a big test this weekend, Duncan, when they come up against the league leaders, Liverpool. Yes, and look, you ask why there are issues about Pochettino's future. you just got to look at the league table. Um, Liverpool, nine games, 25 points. Tottenham, uh, nine games, 12 points. So less than half the points tally of the league leaders after um, less than a quarter of the season and uh, in seventh place below Crystal Palace, below Arsenal, Chelsea, Leicester City, all teams that you would expect on the quality of Tottenham squad, Pochettino to have them uh, above. And and yeah, it, it will be very interesting to see what he can deliver against a Liverpool side um, 
which while riding high in the table um, has looked vulnerable at times this season. They're not playing as well uh, as they did um, last season. Um, they are conceding goals. Um, they struggled badly against Manchester United um, at the weekend, a team that just about everyone in the Premier League is uh, is having joy against at present. And um, and Jurgen Klopp uh, took a long time to get the the, the tactics right against um, against uh, Solskjaer at the weekend. And I'm sure Pochettino will have paid attention to that. Um, Pochettino often plays with um, three centre-backs. So uh, if he was to choose to emulate the system that Solskjaer used very effectively and very intelligently against Klopp on Sunday um, and play with a back five, uh, split his forwards and and play them down the channels between uh, Liverpool's centre-backs and full-backs, there's an opportunity for him to, um, to, to repose those problems to Klopp with higher quality players. Uh, and I, I, frankly, I'd, I'd quite like to see that happen because I'd be intrigued to know how Klopp responds to it um, and whether he would leave it as long as he did uh, on, on Sunday to change shape to, to combat that kind of tactical approach. So it should be a really interesting game this weekend. Well, um, we all love a staging post uh, in terms of the competition, don't we? And of course, as Duncan just mentioned, almost a quarter of the way into the season, it will be after next weekend in terms of the Premier League. And Max, who is at Max Powa, has decided to use this uh, staging post to ask us, who's your favourite for the title race this year? That's his first question, Duncan. He's got actually got three and one here. He's been very sneaky. How long can Liverpool keep their best players largely injury-free? And Guardiola does not look happy. Could this be his last season? So let's go one one uh, at a time there, Duncan. Let's both give our favourites for the title race this year based on the first nine matches. Uh, I think the favourite has to be Liverpool. Um, as, as the... Uh, the transfer window podcasts um, trademark shirts say it's Liverpool's title to lose. Um, we still haven't had the offer from Family Sports Group for that trademark yet, but we're we're hopeful. <laughs> um, <laughs> Try and trademark Liverpool again, except in this phrase. <laughs> yes, put it in a longer phrase. You'll be you'll be okay, lads. Um, look, they have a six point lead over Manchester City. Manchester City have uh, plenty of problems defensively. Um, you have Guardiola has now turned to playing two midfielders at centre-back to try and solve those problems um, and uh, has lost Rodri to a hamstring injury um, in Tuesday night's Champions League game. So that solution uh, has been removed from him, if, if indeed it is a solution. Um, you, as, as I've just said, Liverpool are not playing as well as their points total indicates but a six point advantage at this stage of the season um, being significantly better than every other team in the league apart from Manchester City you have to say um, they have to be your favourites for the title race and and I think it does come down to those psychological aspects that are you know encapsulated in the phrase it's Liverpool's title to lose Um, will they be able to sustain the lead will they be able to take the pressure um, of being in front 
uh, and the you know having that opportunity to end three decades without uh, an English title. Well, we should also remember, Duncan, that uh, Liverpool had a seven-point lead over Manchester City last season, which they overcame, and it was later in the season than this. So um, I take your point on City, and we're going to come on to another question about City and centre-halves uh, after we've spoken about uh, Max's question. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you. I think it, Liverpool got to be the team to beat, obviously, with the, the lead they already have. Uh, Manchester City are not looking as invincible as they did last season um, in the Premier League Um and maybe, just maybe, they will see their focus taken to the Champions League this season as well, despite Pep's protestations that um, they're not ready to win it or, or they're not capable of winning it uh, necessarily. Um, I, I've got, I like, I'd like to think, I'd like to think that Leicester City and Chelsea uh, could take advantage of the poor showings of Spurs, Arsenal, etc., and um, and try and maintain um, the pressure in the, in the top four uh, because that would be you know be a great achievement for Lampard in his first season as a Premier League manager if he could make top four uh, it'd be an amazing achievement for Leicester City uh, second only to, of course to winning the title um, if they could do that uh, as well and it just brings a freshness to the competition if that were the case moving on to Max's second question though Duncan about how long can Liverpool keep their best players largely injury-free? It's almost a, I don't know, a, a, a theme of incredible incredible luck or um, brilliant man management, player management in terms of um, their fitness that, especially the front three, um, although of course Salah uh, was missing at Old Trafford, but um, Virgil van Dijk as well and Joel Matip uh, Alexander Arnold and Robertson. These are all major players who, effective, have almost gone through you know, two, se- two and a half seasons now without having a major injury. Well, not so much Alexander Arnold because he's been yeah, rotated course, yeah. in and out. But yes, um, the the consistency with which able with which Klopp is able to play his preferred eleven is remarkable, um, and it's in stark contrast to what happened when Klopp first came in to Liverpool and. Uh, uh, memorably uh, had a rash of hamstring injuries because he was uh, uh, pushing the players um, to train far harder than they had been training and to put in um, greater distances on the field in order to um, play his his pressing game. Uh, he struggled with the, the January period um, for two seasons um, with big drop-off in, in results um, during the, those uh, that time frame, um, and he he then uh, brought in a rotation system which helped him considerably in in the subsequent season. Uh, I believe he changed the scheduling of training um, to to get rid of some of the complaints that players had about. Um, he, he had this, this preference that players train at the same time as they're going to play later in the week, which in, in the winter in the north of England ended up. Um, with them all quite often training in the dark and, and late in the day, which um, which players had complained about uh, as as being difficult for them to manage um, and psychologically quite difficult to to handle. So he's got over all of that, um, and he's he's produced a, a team which um, 
where there is very little rotation required and where um, the energy levels output by the players are remarkable and you have other people in the game commenting on just how uh, how Liverpool managed to sustain that um, playing uh, weekend and midweek on a consistent basis. Um, so they're obviously doing something uh, that works there. I mean, there's, there's some stories about um, a... Uh, former world champion swimmer, Mark Wernicke, who Klopp has employed um, to work with alongside the club's nutritionist and, and give uh, uh, his players a, an isotonic beverage after matches. And Wernicke has a, a remarkable record of, of winning uh, the world 50-metre uh, breaststroke at age 35. Um, also worked with a, a women's swimmer, um, Dara Torres, who who posted uh, faster time swimming after she'd retired at age 41 than she'd recorded at age 20. So um, that certainly seems to have helped in other sports and and seems to have helped uh, at Liverpool in, in terms of keeping their players uh, at peak performance uh, and avoiding injury. And and if you can do that in football, it's a it's an incredible asset to have uh, because. You, you know, you have your top men on the pitch um, more often than the other teams who are, who, who are struggling with injuries and, um, and having to rotate players because they aren't able to sustain that level of performance. Well, Mark, if you're listening, I've got a very important game this Sunday morning. If you send me some of that isotonic stuff, then I'd be very, very grateful. <laughs> um, and, and I'm serious, just you get in touch. I'll give you my address. Uh, now, Duncan, the last part of Max's uh, question was about Pep Guardiola. Um, he, he reckons he looks unhappy. Do we think this could be his last season? That's a discussion I think we've had a few times regarding Guardiola and his personality. Um, obviously, we had uh, our old friend Roger Mitchell on before the season started who um, was convinced that Guardiola's des um, destiny is to be Juventus manager. Um, do you think he's unhappy? Do you, do you see that in him or, or is it just Pep's usual? Because we know that he can be quite a kind of, you know, uh, glass half full, glass half empty type character, depending on what time of day you catch him. I think he's generally unhappy. He's, a, he's an extremely demanding individual. I think you, you can go and look at him talking about himself in interviews and he'll say that um, he's only really satisfied when he's won um, trophies and, uh, you know, had almost perfect performances on the field so he is that kind of character in terms of is it the unhappiness enough to precipitate a change of uh, of career um, placement for him yeah I think it's it's not hard to imagine a scenario in which Manchester City um, lose this Premier League title uh, to Liverpool possibly lose it by you know, a decent margin. Um, should they should they go through the winter period where they have got a harder schedule than Liverpool and and drop uh, points to leave Liverpool with with a you know a very big advantage going into the second half of the season? Um, I don't see Guardiola taking that well, uh, and he's kind of prepared the ground with um, complaints about. Transfers, um, the, the the lack of spending in key areas, you know, wanting to have brought a centre back in but not being allowed to do it. You've got the financial fair play investigation um, and uh, uh, you know adjudication to come. Uh, the 
distinct possibility that Manchester City could be banned from the Champions League for one or more seasons. Um, something that, again, Guardiola has been very careful to separate himself from when questioned upon that matter. It's always been the case that he has said um, these decisions that had nothing to do with me. They are decisions that were made by the club. I trust the club and they tell me we haven't done anything wrong. So, I mean, that's quite a tactful way to address that those issues because if, if UEFA decide they have done something wrong, Guardiola is able to say, well, it, it wasn't on my watch and, and the people employed me told me that they hadn't broken the rules. So um, you, you see where the responsibility lies there. Then, of course, you have the Champions League itself. Um, Abu Dhabi won that trophy above above all others. Um, Guardiola was hired to win that trophy. He hasn't even got vaguely close to winning it at Manchester City. Just two knockout round wins in three seasons with the most expensive squad in the history of the game. Um, those against Basel and Schalke. So, you know, not beating a team of Manchester City's dimension in a knockout game, failed to win uh, the Champions League at Bayern Munich despite being provided with a, an exceptional squad that had just won the Champions League before his appointment. Um, you know, questions are being asked more generally about his um, coaching ability at that level of the game, whether he makes strategic tactical errors when it when he comes up against the very best opponents on the very best stage um, and you know the, the, there's a the potential for that damaging his reputation so if if and, and obviously this is a big if but if he was to go through this season not win the Premier League uh, not win the Champions League especially if he was to suffer another um, early X against a, a team he would be expected to beat in the Champions League and the proposal came from a club like Juventus um, come to us and work with our squad and uh, experience a different league and get away from the problems of Manchester City um, then you could envisage a scenario in which he would, he would say um, okay I'm interested in that but it has to be said that Guardiola himself has been very consistent when questioning on, on these matters and said, I have a contract and, and uh, I intend to see out that contract. So let's see what happens. People who've worked closely with him um, through the years, Duncan, despite his remarkable success as a coach, uh, describe him as someone who suffers from insecurity, which sounds like a you know, contradiction given um, his status in the game and, and as I said, the amount of trophies he can show uh, for having been a coach but he was very unhappy that people saw him as someone who inherited the greatest team in history at Barcelona and simply didn't even need to even put the names in the team sheet because they put themselves there and of course he won multiple titles including Champions League there as you said he went to Bayern Munich where normally it's a one horse race for the Bundesliga title and that really their focus tends to shift on to the Champions League for that reason and now at Manchester City, as you also pointed out, he's been given um, huge amounts of money to spend and assemble on uh, a very, very, very expensive squad. And having won uh, a domestic treble, back-to-back titles, now going for three, still he seems unhappy. And it's almost because uh, he, th- he, in his own mind, thinks people look at him as someone who piggybacks off you know, other people's, either whether it's money 
or talent in the um, and actually doesn't achieve things as a coach that maybe he should. So um, I think maybe that lies at the root of why he sometimes seems to be, you know, a little bit disgruntled with things. And um, I think someone who will almost never be satisfied. Our next very good question from uh, Miss Blue Mooney, who has brought up the rather um, interesting subject, it has to be said, of Pep's choice of central defenders. Um, and uh, she asks, my question is, do you think City have a better chance of winning the Champions League with midfielders at centre-back in a Pep system? This obviously comes on the back of playing Fernandinho and Rodri. Uh, against Atalanta and Tuesday night's Champions League 5-1 win. Uh, Rodri, as Duncan has already mentioned, has then taken a hamstring injury. Duncan, what does it say to John Stones and Nicholas Otamendi, both experienced international centre-backs, when they're left on the bench and replaced by people who've played a handful of games, if any at all, in their position? Well, look, you mentioned Guardiola's insecurity. Um, if anyone's questioning about that, I think they should go and read the book um, Pep Confidential, written by Marty Perra now. Um, it's an excellent, excellent piece of football journalism. Um, the journalist involved was invited by Guardiola to spend his first season embedded in the camp at Bayern Munich. You get an insight that you rarely get in a book and that this is obviously authorised by Guardiola um, although uh, I think he, the, the journalist involved was given uh, the ability to write as he liked um, and he very much talks about Guardiola's insecurity and he talks to people close to him who also discuss uh, that aspect of his character so it is a factor um, in his management and and possibly related to this decision to, to play to central midfielders at centre-back. Um, I think it's a, it's a gamble on Guardiola's part. Um, it obviously reflects his, his concerns about the way um, his defence has been operating um, and certainly um, long-standing concerns with John Stone's um, focus on the game and uh, his performances in recent times are obviously concerns about Otamendi's performances too and remember Otamendi was a player who wanted to leave Manchester City in the summer who Manchester City were prepared to sell albeit they placed a very high asking price on his head of, of 30 million euros um, and who Manchester City had lined up a, a replacement for um, uh, one of the, the strong options, one of the players they got close to signing was Ruben Diaz from Benfica. So he's been left in a situation having to use centre-backs he doesn't have full faith in and who he knew, one of whom he knew wanted to leave the club. But what he's done is taken um, two key players. So Fernandinho has been absolutely central to his system um, throughout his time at Manchester City and he has emphasised the need to sign a replacement for Fernandinho until he got one in the summer in Rodri who was specifically targeted um, to, to be uh, able to play as well as Fernandinho in that position and to be the long-term successor. So he's, he's taken Fernandinho, moved him to centre-back which is something he had considered as a way of getting both into the team and then moved Rodri 
from that key position uh, to play alongside Fernandinho. So he sacrificed two key players in order to solve the centre-back system. I don't think it's worked from what I've seen so far. Um, I watched the the game um, last night, which they ended up winning comfortably against Atalanta. And yes, Atalanta are a very good attacking side. But what was concerning was how often um, they managed to open City up in the first half. Uh, the goal was conceded when Fernandinho uh, dived into a tackle at the edge of the box, which he didn't need to do. Um, there'd been a chance previous to that in which Fernandinho had played Atalanta's forward onside, being out of position in that role. And, and I think the idea that it's going to help them in the Champions League to play two um, holding midfielders and then have to find another solution to the holding midfield role is a, a very, very optimistic one because centre-back in modern football is a really tough position to play. It's particularly tough to play in a Guardiola system where you are, you're really badly exposed if the tactical fouling um, strategy doesn't stop the opposition from attacking on the counter because Guardiola has so many players positioned in the opposition third of the field when attacking if they lose the ball in the way they did against Atalanta last night when um, when Benjamin Mendy um, chose the wrong pass and, and turned over possession it can turn from ball on the edge of the opposition area to ball on the edge of your own area in, in two, three seconds. So it really is a big ask to convert two defensive midfielders into centre-backs in one season at this level of football. And uh, and I think underlines what a, a big problem City have in, in that area of the field at present and also underlines why um, you could see them uh, going back into the market in January under pressure from Guardiola to sign a, a uh, a high-level centre-back um, to try and give themselves a, a proper solution in that area. First of all, Duncan, I'd say that if I'm John Stones and Otamendi sitting on that bench, for the Atalanta game, seeing two central midfielders playing central defence, my confidence is going to be pretty much destroyed by the team selection. And then furthermore, when Roger gets injured, Guardiola gets up to get Stones uh, to go on for him and berates Stones for the fact that he's not already um, prepared to get on the pitch immediately. And that, to me, just, you know, I can't say how that's good man management by any any way you look at it. The second thing I'd say is um, we've all seen managers who have been dissatisfied with the transfer activities that the club have engaged in um, without having satisfied the manager's requests. And often, protest is made by team selection. So you have... um, Manchester City uh, officials sitting uh, in their seats last night watching Rodri and Fernandinho struggle with those positions and asking themselves, we've got two international centre-backs on the bench. What is he doing? Well, maybe he's doing what he wants you to see, and that is, I don't trust these two guys. I'm sure I need you to spend in January. Yeah, absolutely. And he hasn't had faith in Stones for a long time. So him berating him on the bench isn't isn't uh, going to tell John Stones anything he doesn't know already about um, Guardiola's uh, discontent with the way he's been handling himself um, over the last, uh, well, more, more than this season and into last season. And that's the reason why Stones was, uh, was dropped out of the team. 
you know, Rodri, uh, as I understand it, had never played centre-back in his career until he was selected there to play against uh, Crystal Palace at the weekend. And, you know, he's a, he's a very talented player, Rodri. He certainly has the physique to play at centre-back. But we, I think it's only a couple of weeks ago that Rodri gave an interview talking about how he was very much midway through the adaptation process of um, learning English football and learning how Guardiola wanted them to play and um, you know <laughs> made a, a comment which will not have gone down well with Guardiola that uh, he had to learn how to tactically foul to be a, a correct part of the system um, you're not supposed to say that because according to Guardiola he never instructs his, his players to uh, to foul intentionally he would, wouldn't even think of doing such a thing but yeah, the, the point the key point there is um, you're asking it, learning how to play Guardiola's way is difficult in itself um, learning how to play in a new league is difficult in itself and you're now asking a player um, just a few weeks into that process to do both of those things in an entirely alien position that he's never played before, where he will be exposed to extreme scrutiny if he doesn't deliver. And you're asking him to do it beside a player who isn't a natural centre-back in, in himself. So, you know, the risks there are obvious. He did do it at Barcelona, Duncan. Um, I remember Sergio Busquets playing centre-back on a few occasions. Um, well, Javier Mascarano, he famously converted. Yeah, yeah, Turi played at centre back too. I think it's, an, it's it's not an experiment for Pep, put it that way. It's something he is used to doing. And clearly, he has confidence in his own ability to coach these players to play in a different position. But as I said, I, I don't see it working that well um, uh, in terms of long term for Manchester City. I think this is more of a protest selection. Uh, so that um, Khalid Al Mubarak may well go back into the transfer market in January, and also, uh, also in the, the the demands of playing centre back for Manchester City as a midfielder and playing centre back for Barcelona are different because you're you're playing in a league where aerial football is remains extremely important where certain opposition will absolutely target aerial weaknesses. Everyone knows that Manchester City are are poor at set pieces and Guardiola himself has said on record that you know, when the ball goes into the box he prays um, because he doesn't have <laughs> height. He's, he's not the only manager to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so you know the, the, it's it's definitely a harder thing to do in the Premier League than it is to do with Barcelona. I, I agree, um, Duncan. I mean, teams who are mid-table or, or below will, no matter who the opposition is actually, but certainly the top four, they will try and get corners, fouls, where they can play the ball into the box and trouble them. Simple as that, because they, quite frankly, see it as a, a better percentage way of, of creating a goal-scoring opportunity. And um, yeah. if you've got two guys in Fernandinho and Rodri who are not used to putting either their head or their body where they don't really want to put it because they're normally playing in midfield, then you've got a very better, much better chance of scoring against Manchester City than you'd have normally. So it's it's a perfectly logical and obvious thing for opposition to do against a um, technically superior side. From one kind of defensive crisis, Duncan, to 
you could call it a crisis all over the pitch, really. Well, apart from maybe up front uh, um, discounting the defeat at Sheffield United on Monday night. Because Hassan Al-Habib um, has asked us uh, a question about Arsenal, of course, uh, who are also having a very difficult start to the season, uh, second season under Unai Emery. Hi, Ian Duncan, says Hassan. Hi, Hassan. Uh, do you know if the board have ever been or would ever consider putting pressure on Emery to start Ozil? given the considerable outlay on wages he represents. Strange question in the sense of the wages, Duncan, but I think Arsenal fans are certainly getting very frustrated uh, by the lack of creativity in midfield that the uh, the team is able to produce. And Ozil, um, I think you have quite a strong opinion on an interview you gave recently regarding um, how he sees himself um, at Arsenal. Yeah, look, I think it's it's a fair question because Wizzle's the highest paid player at the club and, and remains one of the highest paid players in the Premier League and has barely been used by Emery this season. Um, we know what he is capable of doing um, in terms of creating goals and, and also scoring goals. He remains an extremely talented player, albeit one who who, um, who can frustrate and, uh, and who often looks like um, he's not applying himself as much um, from a physical perspective as, as some um, external observers would like. And I, and I think that's it's part of the issue with Emery is that he wants, he's, he's very much a a tactician um, and a man who wants his team to operate in the fashion he instructs them to operate for a particular game um, and uh, and feels that Ozil hasn't delivered in that respect for him. Uh, Emery himself keeps saying that there's no special status for any players. So, so this idea that, uh, that the club um, might um, put pressure on him to play him is obviously anathema to Emery in terms of the way he's uh, talking about Ozil. I think uh, Ozil's own response is telling here in that he gave an interview uh, recently, uh, was asked specifically about these matters and said um, very directly that he has no intention of leaving the club, that he has thought very carefully about signing the contract um, he was offered. Uh, to remain at Arsenal and uh, and doesn't see um, any reason to leave. Um, so he he's kind of laid down the the gauntlet there, which is um, you aren't going to sell me, you aren't going to loan me. Um, I uh, want to be playing football, but my desire to play football isn't such that um, you're going to force me out the door by not putting me in the first team. So there's a there's a decision to be made there um, by the manager as to whether he needs to integrate him into the side. And, and certainly Emery's under pressure from the supporters because um, they feel he should be higher in the league um, uh, in a season in which Tottenham are struggling. Um, with Manchester United are basically already out of the running for the, that Champions League place that Arsenal as a club have very specifically targeted um, for financial and sporting purposes um, from this season. But I think you've also got to say they're, they're, they're not too badly placed, although there have been results like the Sheffield United result, which are um, very disappointing. They're only two points behind Chelsea and uh, Leicester City at present. They're fifth. I mean, you could even say they're only four points behind Manchester City, which is... Um, 
uh, not bad at this stage of the season, given how many points they finished behind them uh, last year. So I think it's a, a delicate stage and it's something that Emery will, will have to take note of. Um, and, uh, and, and he definitely needs to get a consecutive set of, uh, of good results behind him to try and quieten that support down. But I don't get any feeling that I'm not hearing anything that Arsenal are preparing, um, even in the medium term, uh, a replacement of manager. I think um, the current uh, board structure and decision-making structure at Arsenal have invested a lot in Unai Emery and, uh, and they have a lot of confidence that, uh, that he's a man who can, can deliver what they need in terms of getting them back into the Champions League and then also performing well in the Champions League once he gets them there. So uh, um, I, think, I think this one's got quite a lot of time to run. And to be very specific in answering Hassan's question, uh, I don't think there's anyone um, on the Arsenal board itself who knows enough about football, Hassan, to uh, even make uh, any kind of request to an IM regarding playing Mesut Ozil. Uh, maybe in the technical department there are, but um, I think at this stage, I think Emery's is still trusted uh, by the technical staff and also the board with regards to making those decisions. So, take your point about his wages and everything else. I think it's interesting um, that there's been quite a kind of growing uh, massive opinion on social media about why doesn't he play Mesut Ozil because it doesn't feel like it was so long ago that it would have been a warm day in hell before the Arsenal fans uh, were going to ask for Ozil to start playing. But I think it shows the discontent, as I said, with the lack of creativity in midfield. Uh, I've, I think, as I've mentioned up front, I don't think Arsenal have that many problems. Lacazette and Aubameyang continue to score goals. Pepe, I think we have to give some time to uh, adjust. Uh, he took a lot of stick um, on Monday night for missing key chances, uh, as uh, Emery put it. However, I do think that he is a, a player who will come good and to adapt to Arsenal's style of play a little bit more and also to English football. But it's very early for him in his career to be judging him on a couple of missed chances uh, last Monday night. So thanks for your question, Hassan. And thank you, everyone, who's uh, contributed today with regards to questions. We hope you have uh, found the answers illuminating. And uh, hopefully uh, we've been able to shed some light as well on the things that you've been asking us on your questions answered today. Of course, it being Wednesday, it's that very special time at the end of the pod when we award this week's donkey. Um, we have to say that we're inspired this week by um, the Manchester United uh, Executive Vice Chairman, Ed Woodward, who gave an interview to the uh, Man United fans in United We Stand, a very lengthy one. And in it were a few corkers, a few class Ed Woodward statements, but the one that stuck out for us was, I have no interest in holding on to power. Now, in light of that, we are going to award this week's donkey will be the Edward Wood Ludicrous Statement Award, um, inspired by that particular statement. Duncan, I am going to just uh, tear open the uh, golden envelope to find out who the nominations are. I've got it here. Hang on a second. There we go. Very good. Oh, I like, oh, some, some old friends here, Duncan. You'll like these ones. First goes to Dermot Gallagher for claiming that every decision on offside, which VAR decides upon, is 100% correct. I'm waiting for your applause, Duncan, on that one. 
Can we have a, a video um, assisted referee judgment on Dermot Gallagher's accuracy, please? <laughs> a video assisted Dermot Gallagher referee. The next is our, uh, Big Sam Allardyce, you know, our favourite Big Sam, who once said, if my name was Sam Allardiccio, I would certainly be managing Real Madrid by now. Um, love to see the four Granada turning up at uh, the training ground there in Madrid. And we've decided we're going to let Ed have um, another little uh, one of his comments from that said interview. Um, we thought we'd put him in for the running for his own donkey, in which he says, one side product of our model is that when a manager wants to sell a player, we usually sell a player, but not always. Thank you for that nugget of nuggetness there, Ed. Uh, Duncan, I'm going to hand over to you to um, award this week's golden statuette. Well, I think uh, I think Brave Dermot already has one of these, doesn't he, for um, for his various um, far announcements this season? His so. various. His various announcements, yes. Um, so while he is uh, very good at the ridiculous um, public statement, I'm going to exclude him. Um, Sam Allardiccio, uh, yes, um, that job in Spain. I, is, is it actually Granada? Is he after the Ford Granada job? <laughs> oh, oh, I love it. Big Sam's Granada in Granada. Beautiful city. Beautiful city, Sam. Do they do they um, do they sell the wine by the pint in Granada? I haven't actually been there myself. If, I'm sure if he takes his own glass, they'll be happy to serve him. Um, and therefore, I think uh, Ed Woodward has to win his own award here, and he will obviously be very glad of of being able to add some silverware um, to his uh, executive vice chairmanship because there isn't really much prospect of any coming with uh, with the current manager in charge. Um, yes, one side product of our model is that when a manager wants to sell a player, we usually sell a player. Um, it'd be interesting to quiz his past managers about his uh, uh, track record on, on selling those players um, because there seems to be a lot of players that managers didn't want to remain at the club who um, actually got new contracts there but there you go Ed Woodward um, we have we have a trophy for you it's on its way to Old Trafford or the London office as you desire <laughs> Ed Woodward wins the Ed Woodward donkey can't beat can't beat that can't beat that well um, it's been a pleasure of course answering your questions today if you want to continue the debate with us and you know we love to get involved after the pods and between the pods please uh, do so at Transfer Podcast on Twitter or at Duncan Castles, and I'm at Garbo SJ. Um, if you like what you hear, then please log on to iTunes, give us a five-star review, and you know what happens. The community grows, as it has been growing exponentially over the last nine or ten months, and we get even more people involved chatting away and creating this community in which we discuss all the things you like to talk about in football. We'll be back with you on Friday, of course. Until then, we will see you through the transfer window. Thanks for listening. 